Emmy Award-winning John Mulaney presents Everybody's in L.A., a special run of six live episodes created by and starring Mulaney that'll stream live on Netflix during the Netflix is a Joke Fest. The comically unconventional show will feature special guests where John Mulaney explores the city of Los Angeles during a week when every funny person is in it. Watch John Mulaney Presents Everybody's in L.A., debuting May 3rd live at 7 p.m. Pacific Time, only on Netflix. For years, I just dreaded going to the dentist. But at Advanced Dentistry, I don't have to. First and foremost, they want you to feel comfortable when you walk in. Like, you'll feel it. Whereas in the past, I might have gone into the dentist and thinking... I might feel some pain at some point, but with IV sedation, it can be something that you don't dread. If you've been avoiding the dentist because of fear, worry, or just not wanting to be judged, you're not alone. Visit NoFearDentist.com to learn how IV sedation can change your life. Welcome back to Fraudsters. Today we're talking about the trial of the infamous Anna Sorokin. I'm Cena Gaznavi. Justin Williams is here as always. And if you remember from last time, Anna Sorokin, or Anna Delvia, she went by when she was in New York City, posed as a fake German heiress so that she could get her way into New York City's most elite social circles. She managed to fund her lifestyle by check-kiting and moving money here and there and getting people to give her money so that she could pay for her hotels and fancy lunches and dinners and spa treatments. And she also even got a bank to give her some money so that she could build her own social club called the Anna Delvey Foundation. Last week we left off, things were starting to fall apart for Anna, and she had just been arrested on a minor charge of not paying for her lunch, and she was released. But that's when everything started to unwind. She's gone back on the financiers for the ADF after they got too close to finding her out. The building she had her sights set on for the ADF had been sold to a Scandinavian art company, Fotografia, and after being arrested for not paying a lunch bill, she has been unveiled as a scammer to her Upper East Side peers. Justin, can you imagine the shame she must have been feeling? Ah, yes. I'll never forget the time that I was unveiled as a fraud at Tin Lizzie on the Upper East Side. (laughs) It was a very, very shameful experience. I could not go to a wine tasting for at least two summers when they I was exposed as a fraud. It was terrible. Yeah, when the people <laughs> out at the Hamptons found out about it, that was when it really became an embarrassment to me. <laughs> well, one of those peers was Rachel Williams. You remember her from last time. She was the one that went on the all-expense-paid trip to Marrakesh. And by all-expenses-paid, we mean she paid and her job paid at Vanity Fair. <laughs> so directly after the trip, Rachel's trying to get this money back. She's sending texts. She's she's calling. She's like, please get your money together so that you can send me this money. Please, I need it. And this whole time, she still thinks that Anna is an heiress. After Anna was arrested and called a wannabe socialite, though, this is when Rachel Williams figured out what was going on. And that was in the New York Post article that she saw that. And the article is the final piece that actually made Rachel 
wake up to the fact that she was never going to get that money back and do that she was friends with such a fraud. Come on, Rachel, get it together. And <laughs> you got this now. But Rachel was going to have the last laugh, as they say. And even while Anna is still sending Rachel the occasional text and swearing up and down that the money's on the way, the money's on the way, it's just tied up in the old German banking bureaucracy. It was tied up at the Kuflakenschniegenschlagel. Ah, Yeah, it was that. That's where it was. Ah, the old Blackenschplugen savings and loan. Please call my lawyer, Glockenspielen Associates. We just lost Germany as a listening group. So now what's interesting here, though, Justin, is that it's almost, it's like the roles have switched. The prey has become the hunter. (laughs) (laughs) And Rachel, who has never alienated herself from Anna because she never gave up hope of getting repaid, now poses as the concerned friend, asking Anna how she is, saying, oh, forget about the dead. I'm just worried about you. Meanwhile, Rachel has gone to the authorities. She's gone to the FBI, and they are orchestrating all of this now. It's so funny. You can just imagine her going, oh, forget about the debt. Just tell me how you're doing. Just tell me the truth if you can. But she's like saying it directly into her lapel. Yeah, exactly. The classic Linda trip. Just like speak it to the lapel. Come on, Monica. I'm your friend. (laughs) She hasn't seen her in a long time. And she's trying to express, you know, empathy or sympathy to Anna. It's like, I get it. You're in financial trouble. And Rachel even is able to lure Anna out of a rehab facility in Malibu called Passages, where she's been hiding out. Quick side note, if you thought Anna was going to hide out in a Motel 6 or something in the Midwest, you thought wrong, okay? Passages is a rehab center known for treating the rich and famous. Now, I don't know how the fuck she ended up getting into this place, probably the same way she did everything else, just by stunting real hard. So naturally, even when Anna was exiled, she's going to do it in style. As soon as she leaves passages to quote meet rachel for lunch however she's met with fbi agents it's a sting and it's officially a wrap for anna delvey she's arrested this time not for a mere failure to pay a lunch bill no this time she's arrested for stealing approximately two hundred and seventy five thousand dollars through multiple scams including two counts of attempted grand larceny in the first degree three counts of grand larceny in the second degree one count of grand larceny in the third degree, and one count of theft of services, just a misdemeanor. And it wasn't just the hotels and restaurant scams and trying to get the loan and all these things that we talked about last episode. There was actually one other really fun scam that I didn't mention last week. And this was from Blade, a private jet airline. And they flew her from NYC to Omaha and back for $35,000 so that Anna could could attend the Berkshire Hathaway annual meeting. And obviously, Anna never paid that airline. I mean, what's amazing about that, Justin, is that she got a round-trip private jet to Omaha so she could have shrimp cocktail with Warren Buffett. Yeah, and she could have ran up a much lower tab if she had just went to the Homie Inn, where they serve champagne on tap, established 1956 in Omaha, Nebraska. (laughs) And I asked what the champagne is. Uh, They wouldn't answer, so I'm just going to assume it was Andre. (laughs) This is the best. The official champagne of fraudsters, Andre. All right, so that brings us to the trial. And there were so many strange things about this trial. First, the fact that there was even a trial at all. I mean, I can't believe she just didn't take the plea deal. There were emails all over the place 
transaction reports, financial statements, bounced checks, wire transfers that didn't go through. You name it, they had it. A mountain of evidence against her. Okay, so that's the fundamentals of the case. Now, <laughs> put on top of that, the fact that Anna had a stylist throughout the trial. One of the biggest things that people talked about throughout the trial in the newspapers was how well-dressed she was. And of course, she's an heiress or a fake one, right? And when the trial ended, all she had to say was, I'm sorry for the mistakes that I've made, which is pretty generic. <laughs> and since we've been talking about Rachel already, let's hear about her role in the trial. Here's another clip from our long interview with Emily Palmer, the reporter who covered the Anna Sorokin trial for the New York Times, where she recounts the trial. Do you think because people at the trial thought that uh, she was too similar to Anna as a person or as a character? I think that that played into it. I mean, to give you a better sort of idea, usually when, you know, when someone in the circumstances that Rachel was in would come to the stand, the first thing that you would need to do is establish, you know, some sort of level of guilt or remorse. I'm saying this because, you know, other trials that I've covered, we could, you know, bring up El Chapo, for instance. Most of the people testifying against El Chapo were very, quote unquote, bad people, right? They were people who were also members of the cartel. They were also killing other people. They were also dealing lots of drugs. Not your most empathetic witness. And so what the you know, prosecutors would do because they're testifying for the prosecution is they would try and humanize them. You know, they would put up out right out front, you know, okay, how many people have you killed? Oh, you've killed 65 people. Okay. You know, how, how many drugs have you, would you say that you probably have crossed uh, across the border? Okay. You know, oh, you had a cocaine addiction and you know, your nasal, you know, cavities were, were completely eroded. You know, like they would go into very extreme details about sort of their biographical experience and it was not pretty and they would also if they could try and get some sort of remorse from the people of this idea that they had changed and nobody really believed it right but at least there was like an effort for the person to say look i've done a lot of bad things and i'm recognizing that even if they didn't seem remorseful just recognizing that they had killed these people and this is me and this is this is who I am and setting sort of a base of, of who you are is really important. The prosecution was really depending on Rachel to to humanize the whole case because before that, with the exception of uh, Gabriel Calatrava, just about everybody had been bankers and it had not been a particularly interesting trial. It had not been com particularly compelling and nobody really seemed to care that much that, you know, bankers were getting conned. But here you had a young woman, you know, living in New York, uh, not from there, didn't have a lot of money, and she had lost almost $60,000. And if you think about it in like how much that affected her, the $60,000 probably affected her a lot more than the tens of millions Anna was trying to get from the banks, right? So, you know, it had totally messed up her credit, you know, her life had been uh, messed up. What happened though, was Rachel never admitted that she had done anything at all untoward. She presented herself as if she were this perfect person. And that may be how she sees herself. Nobody else in the room did, right? She didn't recognize the fact that, you know, there were some things she could have, she could have said, I did wrong here. 
for instance, putting her company card down to pay for the hotel in Marrakesh when that was not a company expense. I could just see the entire jury just shaking their heads like, no. I mean, I went bug-eyed and I wanted to be like, I'm surprised that her company didn't file charges against her, right? They could have. The reason it didn't happen is because, you know, she had gotten her job through a connection at Vanity Fair and that person was very, very protective of her. She was lucky, right? But... But she was really lucky because she had a connection, right? And now she's testifying and and angry that not just, it's not like I expected to pay my own expenses to go to Marrakesh, but I would have liked Anna to pay hers. It was, I went to Marrakesh and I shouldn't have had to pay a single cent because Anna was supposed to be really rich and she was supposed to pay for me. And it's like, so basically what happened is you got stuck footing the bill that you thought somebody else would foot completely and and you think all of this is unfair yo i'm sorry but like the new york jury they must have put together must have been eye rolling that entire time because i've i served on a jury last year and it is a beautiful cross-section of humanity of new york city (laughs) from young to old to rich to poor and there's very few people from like the upper east side you know wealthy class that usually end up serving on jurors juries they probably usually you know get out of it in some way so you got working class folks that are serving on these juries hearing someone just complain about not getting their free trip to marrakesh <laughs> fuck out i guess meanwhile one of the jurors is worried about if they're gonna miss the last b46 bus back to their house <laughs> yes yes and the disconnect between Rachel and the jury was palpable. After the trial, after the verdict, I inter- I tried to interview some jurors and I spoke to one juror, Debbie, and she said that uh, they had ultimately, they found, ultimately they found, uh, the jury found Anna not guilty of several of the charges, including the one against Rachel Williams. And I said, you know, why did you, why did you find Anna not guilty of that charge? And she said, and I quote, Anna did a lot of nice things for her and she accepted it right down to the spa. (laughs) And it was so true. I mean, you know, like Rachel hadn't paid for her dinner. She hadn't paid for her spa treatments. She hadn't paid for her Casey Duke $300, you know, a, a day trainings. And then she got mad about, you know, this other bill, which was, was quite large, not to, you know, underplay it, but, but just nobody, nobody cared. Nobody know? gave a shit. Um, of course, uh, it's like I can't imagine a worse jury to present that witness to. Uh, it's just beautiful. Oh, it doesn't. And, you can't write this stuff. And then I think on the very day of the sentencing, uh, she announces her her book deal, um, which was also a part of the trial. And that was something that the defense sort of tapped into. Okay, like. You, you know, you're presenting yourself as this victim, but you're going to make a lot of money on this book, a lot of money on this HBO deal that you've signed, way more than the $60,000 that you lost. And she says, oh, well, I think that a lot of people could, could relate to my experience and I wouldn't want them to make the same mistakes I did. And you sit in the room and I think everybody might have had the same thought. I would never make that mistake and I don't relate at all. You know, I mean, it was, it was like, she could have said, I tried to make something, you know, 
good from something bad. You know, I did lose a lot of money. I do have a lot of bills. Yeah, I'm making some money here. You know, it, it's the only way I can pay people back. Instead, she went this other way, you know, and it was just like, mm, honestly, I, I think I think the jury might have related more to the, uh, you know, the adverse witnesses in the El Chapo trial than they did yeah. Rachel in this thing. At least in that trial, they're like, well, he was a drug dealer. You're probably going to get shot and kill some people at some point. Yeah. Wow. Right. Yeah, everybody knows a drug dealer. I love I love the relatableness. It's like, yeah. you know, if I had to do all over again, I wouldn't have went to that place in meatpacking. And yeah, exactly. it's like, what is meatpacking? What are you talking about? <laughs> Fuck out of here. <laughs> so that was the one charge, which I love that they uh, found her not guilty on. That is I like- should note that there were 10 charges and they were found. She was found not guilty of two of them. It was stolen property from Rachel Williams. And it was also the top charge. And the top charge was ultimately attempted grand larceny, first degree, exceeding $1 million for City National Bank. And it was the attempt to steal $22 million. So when you total it all up, she was found not guilty of attempt and theft of more than $22 million and guilty of attempt of 25 to 30 million, but only the successful theft of $209,879. And that I think is worth noting. There were very large attempts. What she actually stole and was found guilty of stealing was over some $200,000. Not peanuts, but peanuts compared to the tens of millions she was attempting to get. An actual terrible batting average for yes. her if she, <laughs> if she were in there. So, uh, but let's go to that the that big loan because so often again in, in the show we end up talking about you know the folks that go big for the giant thing end up getting mm -hmm. off with it and that's not a big deal, right? We've seen that time and time again. Trying to get a loan is not illegal, right? For lying on the documents would be the illegal part. Is that right? That that is correct. Lying about about your assets and about sort of you know, who you are uh, and, and forging documents. That's when it becomes illegal. What about it made it not guilty? What was the reasonable doubt? The jurors didn't talk a lot to us and we didn't go into those particular details. Rachel was a, was an easier thing, I think, for people to sort of talk about. The, the real yeah. issue, uh, and I think that this is important, it was a bank and she didn't actually get the money. You know, the, the people that came to testify versus the people that should have been testifying were night and day. And this goes to the banks and this goes to all the other people as well. The banks appeared really nervous about this trial, right? I mean, you have City National, you have City Bank, you have uh, Fortress, which is a, another company that, uh, that was, was dealing with a lot of money. These are, are groups that actually like build their, their clientele off of, you know, being respected, trustworthy institutions that would not get conned by a woman in her mid-20s who pretends to be a German heiress and, oh, guess what? She's not, right? This was super embarrassing for these banks. And I think ultimately the reason that she was found not guilty of the top charge is because the banks were too embarrassed to really tell the full story. For instance, they put their mm. spokespeople and their like top people who had barely been associated with her at all on the stand. 
they left out the little guys who have been her her main contacts at the bank. The ones emailing with her, the person, the loan officer. The people who were emailing with her, the people who were taking her out to dinner and like making the connections between her and the bank, they never came to the stand. And if they had come to the stand, I think you would have had a much more humanized version of what happened to those individual people at the bank, as well as the bank generally. But instead, you got these people who were reading off of forms and were being incredibly, you know, just stark in their responses, um, had obviously had lots of training to answer these questions, and spoke in so many numbers that even me who was like tasked with like writing down the numbers and like that's what i had to worry about not guilt or innocence just like getting the facts down could barely keep up with all the numbers being thrown out and what it really meant you know it was presented in such a i mean this is a this is a story that's fantastic the case the trial was mind numbing most days and the banks wanted it to be that way, right? They didn't want there to be lots of, of coverage of how badly their bank had handled things. So, you know, I was coming into the trial almost every day. We only wrote a few times, but the tabloids expected to be writing all the time on this. And the trial was so boring that they began to just write about her outfits, right? Now, her outfits were really interesting, but... If the trial had been more um, compelling, they wouldn't have had much time for the outfits. For 25 years, Mike's has been making lemonade the hard way. Mike's Hard Lemonade. Hard days deserve a hard lemonade. Mike's is hard. So is prison. Don't drive drunk. Premium all beverage with flavors. All registered trademarks used under license by Mike's Hard Lemonade Company, Chicago, Illinois. Emmy Award-winning John Mulaney presents Everybody's in L.A., a special run of six live episodes created by and starring Mulaney that'll stream live on Netflix during the Netflix is a Joke Fest. The comically unconventional show will feature special guests where John Mulaney explores the city of Los Angeles during a week when every funny person is in it. Watch John Mulaney Presents Everybody's in L.A., debuting May 3rd live at 7 p.m. Pacific Time, only on Netflix. Hear that? It's the call of the Crave. And when the Crave calls, you know what to do. Try the $5 Bacon Bundle, because the only thing better than a White Castle slider is a White Castle slider topped with crispy hickory-smoked bacon. So pick any two of either the Bacon Cheese Slider, 1921 Bacon Cheese Slider, or Chicken Bacon Ranch Slider, and also get a small fry for just $5 with the $5 Bacon Bundle. White Castle. Follow your Crave. Looking for some amazing TV to stream? Indulge yourself with the hits on Hulu you can't miss. Dive in with Barney, Ted, Robin, and the gang on How I Met Your Mother. All nine seasons are now streaming on Hulu. Then you can move to Modern Family, Schitt's Creek, and My Wife and Kids. We're talking every episode and every season of these shows. We're talking huge hits, streaming on Hulu whenever you're in the mood. Now we're talking. So the victims from the banks, the banks were the victims in this case. And as our audience has told us on the show that they don't really care when banks are victims. And I you totally understand that. Um, but the people that worked at those banks that were the loan officers, they never came on the stand. 
What about the hotel employees or some of the concierges or the receptionists or some of those like kind of like uh, the blue collar workers that she befriended and then conned uh, and and left them with the bill at times? Did any of them testify? No. You had these high-end bankers. You had the arresting officer for the $200 meal ticket. You had Rachel. From memory, those are the people that I'm that I'm remembering. You had Gabrielle Calatrava. Uh, you did not have any uh, low end hotel workers. You had you didn't have her friend who had you know uh, who continued to run her Instagram accounts while while Anna was at Rikers. You didn't have the people who uh, you know really were close to her. And I don't know that that concierge would have been a helpful person to be on the stand. Uh, she seemed to have you know maintained the friendship and to really see nothing wrong with what Anna had done. But I think with both the banks and with the hotels, there there was an embarrassment, and there there would have been more compelling people that they could have put on the stand that they just didn't. You also see a similar thing. I mean, the number of no shows at this trial, and when I say no shows, I mean before a trial starts, there's a list of potential witnesses. This is something that they give to the defense so that they can prepare. And it's something that for a trial like this, you know, you know, we can take a look at and sort of like know who to, to prepare to maybe see. People on the prosecution's list included uh, Andre Balaz, the hotelier of uh, the Chiltern Firehouse in London, also the Mercer in New York. Rue Rogers, a businessman with a bunch of startups and uh, the son of Richard Rogers, a, a famous architect. Abby Rosen, a real estate developer and tycoon who's married to the socialite Samantha Boardman. Uh, Casey Duke, a celebrity fitness trainer. Those are just a few of the names. None of them testified. And that was the human story, right? Now, why did they not testify? I mean, we didn't think Rachel Williams was very compelling. None of these people maybe would have been compelling either, but it would have told a bigger story of, of what really happened that would have painted, I think, a, a thicker picture for the jury. And they just never got that. Do you think that they all said that they all didn't show up basically because they knew they wouldn't be a sympathetic witness or that it might be embarrassing for them to admit that they got conned? The prosecution chooses who they call. So they didn't call these people. And I think that was probably in part um, because they were worried it wouldn't help their case, that they wouldn't be compelling. But I think also, you know, these are influential people who can probably say, look, I really don't want to go on the stand. And that might have been considered, too. Okay, so that's amazing. The other thing I wanted to ask about is the defense. What was their theory of the case and how did they play this out? I know the lawyer had an interesting opening statement. The opening statement was more about Frank Sinatra than Anna Sorokin. It took at least a minute before he even mentioned her name. Uh, And it was all about, you know, if you can make it here, you can make it anywhere. The New York dream. And... Of course, he's talking to a bunch of New Yorkers, many of them probably born and raised in New York and not with that same New York dream that he was, you know, talking about here. But that dream that dream was broken a long time ago for them. <laughs> yeah. As soon as you're as soon as you've lived in New York a few years, you're like, yeah, okay, sure. Yeah. Uh, but um but it was just sort of this idea of like if you can make it here, you can make it anywhere. She wanted to build the Anna Delvey Foundation. There's no evidence that says she didn't. 
So, and this is, you know, the defense's argument. So she wouldn't even be held accountable if she'd actually gotten the money and been able to build, you know, build this up. This is a woman of little means who simply wanted to be a big fish in a big pond, and she almost did it. Start spreading the news. Anna's leaving today. I want to take a part of it. New York, New York. These Prada shoes. And Soho Hotel stays. Right through the very heart of it. New York, New York. I want to wake up. In a city that doesn't sleep And find I'm queen of the hill Top of the heap That these Germany blues Are melting away I'll make a brand new mark of you In old New York if I can make up shit here, I can't up shit anywhere. The tabs on you, New York, New York. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury. You have Miss Sorokin on trial here today on several charges. Did she run up tabs at expensive hotels and restaurants with no intention to ever pay them? Yes. Yes, she did do that. Did she Photoshop financial documents in order to get advances from banks that she never intended to pay back? Yes. Yes, she did do that. Did she create an entire persona and defraud her rich friends on the Upper East Side out of money for an expensive vacation to Marrakesh? Yes! Yes, she did do that. But does Anna Sorokin believe in the American dream? Yes! Yes, she does. And if believing in the American dream is wrong, then ladies and gentlemen of the jury, I don't want to be right. Thank you so much. <laughs> yes, exactly. There we go. And like that, the case was thrown out. <laughs> <laughs> well, obviously, that wasn't uh, Anna's lawyer, Todd Spodek, uh, who we were able to talk to. Uh, but, you know, we, we don't actually have any recordings of the trial, which we did try to get. But we did actually get to talk to Todd Spodek who was awesome. And he's the man who made this amazing opening argument without the musical number. He invoked Frank Sinatra. But you should hear it for yourself. We're going to play the interview that Justin and I got to have with Todd Spodek. Uh, I think you're going to like it. It was it was well worth it. How did you get in touch with Anna? And how does she kind of... It sounds like she fits in right with your clientele in general. 
Yeah. So I didn't get in touch with Anna. Anna got in touch with me. Um, but, you know, it's an interesting story. I mean, essentially what happened is Anna had reached out to the firm, just like any potential new client would. But she was adamant that she wanted to meet me. And she was adamant that she wanted to meet me right away. And our firm is based out of Manhattan. But we have offices in Brooklyn and Queens and some other places. And I said, listen, I'm with my son. I can meet you on the weekend, but I'm going to be with my son. And you know, we could talk and see if we could work together. So my son and I were on our way to a friend's party. He was leaving for Chicago. And we were dressed to kill, as always, because we're like that. And uh, I met her in my office in Brooklyn with my son. And essentially, I was in one room with her. And he was in a conference room right across from me in my line of vision, playing on a computer, watching Netflix. And mid-consultation, he came and sat on my lap and joined the consultation and put <laughs> stickers all over Anna. And it was a pretty uh, humorous <laughs> moment in our relationship. And uh, it, it obviously wasn't the strangest part of the story, but it certainly was uh, an interesting part. What was your first impression of her? She was obviously overwhelmed. You know, she came in and she had a lot going on. And I could tell from my interaction with her that, that there was more to the story. Uh, keep in mind, at that juncture, she was only charged with a minor misdemeanor offense. It wasn't anything like what ultimately came to be her trial and her case. So I could just tell from the way she was interacting with me and, and you know, everything that there was more to it. And I knew that it was going to unfold, which is part of why I was interested in working with her. So when you judge a case, like a case comes in, and I know every attorney has to do this, they have to basically think to themselves, am I going to win this case? Or what can I do with this case? Or is this something that I even want to take on? When she laid out everything that was kind of in front of her, I know it was the misdemeanor, but you were getting the entire story, presumably, of what had been happening. What was your thought? Like, did you, what did you kind of handicap your odds at at that point? So a lot of times people come to me with cases that aren't necessarily straightforward and aren't a case where I could say, listen, this is something we could prevail at trial or this is something that you have to plea. They kind of come to me like a hot mess and they want me to help sort of navigate it one way or the other. Now, this may be hard for your audience to believe, but not all criminal defendants tell the lawyers the truth when they first meet them. No, yeah. stop yes. it. No. Yes. No. Yeah. Breaking news coming out of Spoda Club <laughs> today. So when Anna first came in, she gave me a snapshot that she wanted me to hear. You know, she, she provided whatever information she wanted to convey to me, but she did not disclose the entire case. She did not disclose her trials and tribulations in New York and other places. So I honestly left that meeting being like, okay, she has a minor case in New York. There's more to the story. I remember going home and telling my wife about the interaction and being like, look, like there'll be something to come of this. I don't know what it'll be, but I know there's more to the story. She's like, for some reason that I can't say, I'm being harassed by several high-end New York City restaurants. <laughs> right. I mean, there was just, you know, like you could just tell from meeting someone, you know, in, in our business, you're forced to like interact with people so much and judge people's character and judge their demeanor and judge if they're being honest. And my experience with well-to-do clients, you know, in our office is downtown and, and we have a lot of people in finance and stuff, is that there's never an issue when you owe money. For example, if you're a baller and you owe someone money, 
motherfuckers will get on a plane and hand deliver the money for you if need be. Like there's never an issue. Like there's no scenario whatsoever. It's like, I don't know. I can't get the bill paid. Like you, you could pay on your phone. You could wire money. You could send a check. I mean, you could, you could do so many things. So as soon as I hear that, I know, all right, there's, you know, there's some bullshit involved. And obviously in Anna's case, the backdrop was a large issue of people getting paid for uh, services and whatnot. So how do you figure that out? You, you got a whole case based on someone that's not paying her bills anywhere. And how are you supposed to get paid? Well, good point. Thankfully, I'm savvy enough to, you know, realize that up front. And if it's someone I want to work with, I will have them assign a lien on any future earnings, on any assets, et cetera, et cetera, uh, which ultimately happened here as well. Exactly. So you're now a producer in the Netflix special. Right. So now I'm, I'm in Hollywood. I'm not really. This is actually a green room. It's the green room. And uh, yeah, exactly. So I kind of knew, I, I knew there was, I, I didn't know that this was going to turn into a Netflix film and HBO and all this sort of stuff. But I knew that it wasn't that much work to start out. And I knew I would get paid from her eventually one way or the other, because we've been down that road with other clients and, and it's just something we're comfortable with. Were you suspicious when she tried to pay with a Fisher's Price, my first checking account check? <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, my son was very interested in that, but I was like, you know what? The billing department's gonna have some reservations, so yeah. Okay, so let's go to the trial here. Your opening statement, you invoked Frank Sinatra. Of course. Was this the first time you've ever done that? And kind of take me to that opening statement. What was the day like? What was the jury's kind of response? Take me there. Tell, t paint a picture for me. Sure. So, you know, I've done a fair amount of trials in New York County and, and trial is like theater. You know, ultimately you're putting on a show. That's how this works. And uh, your relationship with the jury matters. And you have to be honest with the jury and they have to believe what you're saying. And you know, that's what really counts at the end of the day, no matter how good a case is, how bad a case is, the evidence, you have to be able to connect with them and get across your theory. So going into this trial, Anna and I knew that we were not saying they got the wrong person, like this is mistaken identity. And considering the documentary evidence, the bank records, the emails, the wire transfers, all this sort of stuff, we couldn't escape from her actions, right? We couldn't be like, we have no idea what the fuck happened here. She was just trying to, you know, get a drink and somehow she got ensnared in this massive scam. Like it is what it is. So I took the position that we have to fight the intent that our objective was for them to say, what was she really thinking? And she was a young, impressionable girl who was trying to make moves in New York City, like all of us, like everyone out there. And I wanted to convey that in a way that makes sense to the jurors. And I tried to do that by bringing up Frank Sinatra, who I love, I'm a big fan of, and being like, look, this is New York. This is why we're all here. We're all in New York spending this much money to live here in these tight quarters, hustling, running around all day because this is like the land of possibilities. And we're all here for that reason. And Anna was a young, ambitious woman who came to New York with the same goals as all of us. And I wanted to get that connection uh, to the jurors in a way that would make sense for them. And music, particularly things that are you know, in pop culture, I have an ability of connecting people. And I knew that um, they would sort of see my perspective. And, and I think we did it successfully. 
And to answer your question about the day, oh, it was a hot mess. I mean, it was a packed courtroom, courthouse, press all over the place. Anne is overwhelmed, you know, stylist issues and, you know, everything was crazy. And it wasn't like, you got to realize on the DA side, they have a team, right? You know, DA has a number of prosecutors, paralegals, tech people, whatever they need. It's just me and Anna up in there, and you know it's difficult. It's not. It's not easy. You got to manage her. You got to try the case. You got to do everything. So, so from the defense point of view, it's a totally different experience than a prosecution and their point of view. Uh, so you mentioned you were going to argue the intent side of things here. Right. Is that mean? Um, can you just kind of break that down for our audience a little bit? Sure. Sure. So all crimes are broken down into elements, right? You have to like take certain actions uh, in order to be found guilty of certain crimes. And in this case, some of those elements, some of those actions, we couldn't dispute, right? I could not dispute that she submitted documents to a bank in order to get a loan. I could not dispute that she actually took out money from a bank account when there wasn't enough money to cover that. I can't dispute those things because they're, they're facts. They're indisputable. And I'm not going to sit and argue to a jury where they don't believe what I'm saying is true. So, so you're saying fake news is not a defense. You can't use fake correct, news. Correct. Exactly. Fake it. news Just does not work. Clear. No got Fox it. reporters <laughs> over at the courthouse. Okay. Yeah, got it. So, so for us, I'm like, look, she may have done these actions. We're not disputing that she did that. We're not saying someone hacked in and this is a Nigerian bank scam and Anna had nothing to do with it. <laughs> what we're saying is, what was her mindset? Now, it may have been fucked up. It may have been that her mindset was not what we would do or how we would act. But a young, ambitious, impressionable woman who's trying to get ahead, sometimes you do these things, right? And the way that I tried to get this across was kind of like with online dating. Right. So I would I would probe all the jurors about online dating and like LinkedIn and your resume and all that stuff, because we all put our best, best, best profile online. We all put our best resume when nobody advertises uh, on a dating site and being like, look, I'll look really good on the first date, but it's all downhill after that. So that's what happened here. You know, Anna, Anna tried to put her best foot forward and tried to get past that initial threshold that a lot of us get stuck on, right? I can't get a bank interview. I can't go to a hedge fund and have them advance me money. And she was able to do that because she kind of hustled and, and, and thought that it would all work out. And that's what I try to convey to the jury. I think you go to all the good online dating sites. You've never been on plentyoffish.com. That's where you put your worst foot forward and you go accept <laughs> Right, right, exactly. <laughs> exactly. I only, know of, I only know of the top creme de la creme dating sites. So you also invoked uh, millennials. And so, and can I, are you saying that my generation is full of fraudsters? I am saying is that the world we live in is one that's obsessed with the image and persona of someone's lifestyle and that everyone wants to be a rock star here. I'm on my private jet. I'm eating at this restaurant. I'm traveling the world I'm this and that. And that's the bullshit people are into. And that's what people do. And that's what she did. And that's what online dating is. And that's what LinkedIn is with your resume. That's what, what we all do, right? Everyone does that in their life. Some do it in a way that winds up being indicted for crimes and some get a date in New York City. But you understand that these things really do happen. So when you were basically arguing that the intent was different, she, her intent was not to deceive, but her intent was merely to be successful in a way. Her intent was to buy time. She 
believed in her vision for her foundation that it would work out and that she would have the money to pay everyone back. So she was buying time. At the very moment she allegedly committed those crimes, her mindset was not, how do I steal this money and run away? There was no evidence of her leaving the country or buying some extraordinary thing with all this money. She actually believed it. That may have been naive and that may have been crazy, but that's what it was. For 25 years, nothing has tasted better after a hard day's work than a Mike's Hard Lemonade. It's because since day one, Mike's has been making lemonade the hard way. We use three kinds of lemons, all handpicked from family farms, then blended to perfection in cold press to create the epic hard lemonade you know and love. Mike's Hard Lemonade. Hard days deserve a hard lemonade. Mike's is hard. So is prison. Don't drive drunk. Premium all beverage with flavors. All registered trademarks used under license by Mike's Hard Lemonade Company, Chicago, Illinois. Emmy Award-winning John Mulaney presents Everybody's in L.A., a special run of six live episodes created by and starring Mulaney that'll stream live on Netflix during the Netflix is a Joke Fest. The comically unconventional show will feature special guests where John Mulaney explores the city of Los Angeles during a week when every funny person is in it. Watch John Mulaney Presents Everybody's in L.A., debuting May 3rd live at 7 p.m. Pacific Time, only on Netflix. Looking for some amazing TV to stream? Indulge yourself with the hits on Hulu you can't miss. Dive in with Barney, Ted, Robin, and the gang on How I Met Your Mother. All nine seasons are now streaming on Hulu. Then you can move to Modern Family, Schitt's Creek, and My Wife and Kids. We're talking every episode and every season of these shows. We're talking huge hits, streaming on Hulu whenever you're in the mood. Now we're talking. Hi, it's Martha Stewart. You know, I spend a lot of time thinking about dirt. At 3 a.m.? At all hours of the day, really. What people don't know is that not all dirt is the same. You need dirt with the right kind of nutrients. New miracle Grow organic raised bed and garden soil is so dense, so full of nutrient-rich, high-quality ingredients. miracle Grow is simply the best. So to kind of talk about the, the uh, Anna Delvey Foundation here, and she was trying to get this money and try to get this loan and stuff, the banks that, that were involved in this, uh, from what I understand from Emily Palmer, they didn't bring any of the people that Anna actually spoke to. They just brought some like generic representative from the banks to testify. Is that right? Um, so the banks had the individuals who were involved in the transactions testify. However, the celebrities and the names that Anna was associated with only a few of them wanted to come to court to testify about their relationship with Anna. Surprise, surprise. Well, when they were at the, you know, fancy events in New York City and Paris, they all would live in La Vida Loca. But when it was time to actually come to court and testify, they were not here. So you think, what is that? Is that they're ashamed of it or they're yeah, embarrassed? Of course. Yeah, listen, everyone, lo they, they love this woman. They love this woman. They invited her all over. What are you talking about? These architects, these guys are getting paid thousands, thousands of dollars. They were connecting with her for nothing. These high-priced real estate lawyers, restaurateurs, nightclub aficionados, all of these people who are in this world wanted to be associated with her just at the time that it was important for them. Shame on you, Diddy. <laughs> when all these people coming through, uh, you know, the witnesses and all the evidence getting presented, what was Anna's demeanor like during the trial? 
I mean, Anna's my girl. You know, we had a great rapport and we still have a great rapport. And she was like, look, we're going to war here. And I was like, yeah, we're going to war. Let's do this. And as we, you know, as the trial went on, we had some victories and we had some losses. Um, but, you know, it's important to someone in her shoes that the real story comes out, right? So like win or lose a trial, that's one aspect of a trial, but this is her life and, and she turned down obviously the plea bargain and she wanted the world to know exactly what really did happen and what was her intent. So I think ultimately she was really happy with how, you know, how we portrayed the story, how we conveyed what really happened. And, and she's happy with the result in that, you know, obviously she got acquitted of two of the charges. Um, and her ultimate sentence wasn't much more than what the plea was. So I, I want to go to those two charges that she didn't get. She got, you know, she went to prison for the theft of services stuff, which is like lunches and hotels, right? That was the... And, and for the bank fraud, but not all of it. She, she was but acquitted not, Oh, of, I see. Yeah, so the, she, she was acquitted of two charges. One against Rachel, who I'm sure you know about, uh, with a, you know, trip to Morocco. And then one against City National Bank uh, for the fraud. So this, let's go to the bank part first. What was the kind of reasonable doubt that made the jury acquit her of that charge? I mean, I, you know, not having anything to do with it, I, I have to guess it has to do with the defense lawyer. That's just my two cents. <laughs> that, that's just purely like an well, outsider. how convenient. Yeah, exactly. Um, what an objective outsider, yes. <laughs> I think that, I think that, to be honest, I think that we told the jury the truth and we didn't waste our time fighting the charges that we knew we were going down on. So our strategy going into this was not, we're going to get a full acquittal. That was never a real possibility. Our strategy always was to focus on this charge and the charge against Rachel. Um, so that's why I'm saying is we focused on the intent and we focused on the attempt, meaning um, to, to attempt to commit a crime, you have to get really close to actually committing the crime. So the jury believed me and I spoke to them afterwards and I stand by this, that I wasn't bullshitting them. I wasn't telling them she did nothing illegal. I wasn't saying that, you know, this is a misunderstanding. I was saying this part's illegal, but this part she really didn't have the intent and she really doesn't meet the criteria needed by law. And, and they followed our logic and they acquitted her on those charges. So when it comes to City National Bank, that was for the $100,000, right, that, that she was able to get from them or overdraft on her account. So, so the hundred thousand, they just advanced her. They were like, cool, you need a hundred thousand dollars. You're a German heiress, like Mazel Tov, here you go. And they gave her a hundred thousand dollars. The DA's position was that she attempted to get all this other money. Right. And my position was that she never got close to getting that money. Like she didn't ever get to the point where it was a reality. In fact, every check across the way came out against her. And they testified that, yes, she was never that close because we never got what we needed. The due diligence never came back. This never came back. And by not being that close, she couldn't have been guilty of attempt by law. What is the difference between Anna getting a advance from City National Bank when she didn't have any of the money at all and just some businessman that maybe has been bankrupt seven times before going to a bank and asking for a loan and everyone knows that they're probably not good for it. Good question. So the difference is when Anna went to the bank and filled out all the prerequisite forms, they unfortunately did not tell the truth about her financial situation at that time. So if you yeah. go to a bank and you're like, look, I'm broke, like this is not a good situation, but I need $100,000 and the bank's like, cool, this works for us. That's okay, right? Like the bank is entitled to make 
decisions based on whatever criteria they think is appropriate. If you go to a bank and you're like, I'm a bazillionaire and I, I'm just counting money all day, I just need a little bit more, can you give me $100,000? And in reality, you have nothing, that's a lie. That's committing perjury. You're lying under oath, you're submitting documents that are not accurate, etc. So when it comes to the Morocco trip, it was, you know, Rachel was on the stand kind of explaining it. She has her book. She was on Dr. Oz. She did a press tour, all of these things. What was it about that story where that charge was acquitted? Was it just she should have known better? So what happens is, right, you know, Rachel made a choice to pay for that room. Nobody put a gun to her head. Nobody said, listen, if you don't do this, X, Y, Z is going to happen. And Rachel was in a world where Vanity Fair picked up the cost of different things, whether it be hotels, dinners, drinks. That's that world. You schmooze people. You're a big photographer. We're going to go out, blah, 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 blah. And at the end of the day, you know, Rachel made that choice on her own. Anna didn't make her do that. And however fucked up it is and however problematic it is that, you know, she went through this emotional turmoil trying to collect the money afterwards and all that stuff, it still doesn't make it a crime. And, uh, you know, her testimony was pretty explosive and, and, and she broke down. And, you know, this is someone who is an opportunist, right? I mean, you know, there's a reality to the situation. You can't, you can't go to a jury in New York City where people have real hardships out there. People are suffering. People don't have money. People have family who are hurt and violence and all types of things and be arguing that you almost had to get therapy because you owed your credit card some money. Like, that's, you're not going to connect with them. You know what I'm saying? Like, so, so I honestly, I say that's, you know, to some degree, the fault of her preparation, right? Because that's what I mean when I say you have to connect with the juror. As soon as you take that course of action, they're going to laugh you out of the courtroom. They're not going to relate to you. Yeah, I was just on jury duty in December, um, and it was a beautiful cross-section of New York City. Every single kind of person from yeah. every economic portion of Brooklyn was there. And that's what jumped out at me, having listened to Rachel and having listened to the story and reading some of the book. It's completely unrelatable. Even the fact that she worked at Vanity Fair would be like just out. (laughs) You're a rap already. She she should have opened her mouth and been like, look, I get this is not the worst thing to ever happen to anyone. Like, I get that. You know what I mean? She should have conveyed that to the jury and that should have been part of her direct. I would never have a witness take the stand and, and testify like that because I was able to rip her apart because it was it was so absurd. You know, it just was the girl's making almost a million dollars from this. This is the worst thing that ever this is the fucking best thing that ever happened to you. You <laughs> waited your whole life for this moment. <laughs> yeah, I mean, really. was, you know, you quit your job and are on a road show promoting your book. Like what are you talking about? Yeah. Does the jury understand that now I can't eat at the four seasons anymore? Exactly. I mean, it's crazy. It's really crazy. So Anna has been granted parole. All right. So let's clap it up. Let's all clap it up. Clap, 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 clap. Um, There's a difference between being granted parole and actually leaving prison. So she's been granted parole. And now there's like a time calculation to make sure she has all the requisite time in. But I anticipate her being released from prison early next year. So January, February, I anticipate her being released. Will she have to wear an ankle bracelet or anything like that? No, nope, nope. So she'll she'll be released from prison, but the problem is due to her immigration status, there's a detainer on her. So ICE can, and unfortunately, 
likely will take her into custody for deportation proceedings. When you talk to Anna, do you, is it Anna Sorokin or is it Anna Delvey? You know, I know her for a long time now and she makes me crazy. Like she calls me all day long, every day. Um, But like I said, that's my girl. That's my client. Like that's this business, you know, we're in it together. Um, So we, we talk, you know, frankly, and she's real with me. I, I, she doesn't sort of put up the same, you know, shell that she puts up with other people. So, so she's honest with me. And, and we've talked about sensitive things over the years. And, and like I said, this is a smart woman. This is not, yeah. you know, this is a very smart, shrewd woman. Like she's going to come out of prison like gangbusters and do some amazing things. I guarantee you. And, and you're absolutely right. Like that's what's I think amazing about this. Very few people are able to create money and wealth out of just thin air, just absolutely. just out of nothingness. So yeah, this- exactly. Yeah. The the other point I bring up that I think is is sort of important is. Listen, I'm an attorney doing this for, you know, over a decade, successful law firm. My mother bought a condominium in Brooklyn and I assisted her and went through the process with the banks and all that. And it was a nightmare. It was an absolute nightmare. And this is a regular bank on not a crazy loan. Like this is as basic as it possibly gets. And it was a disaster. Anna, who's a foreign national who doesn't know the first thing about finance or real estate financing or hedge funds came to New York and was like, what's up? I'm here. Hedge funds opened the door, advanced her money, took her meetings. Every person she connected with was more than happy to do business with her. And that's, that's really, uh, you know, something to applaud that she was able to get that far. What does that say about the system that we are in, the the economic or financial system where someone like Anna can come in and just run, basically run train on everyone and just get this money? Right. Well, I mean, that's the sad state of affairs of New York City and the entryway into these worlds, right? Like Anna has a really good mind for business and had a really good idea. And with the right people and the right you know, training, she probably could have made it a success, but she didn't have the benefit of going to Wharton or rich parents or advisors who could help her. She had to hustle. She had to kick the door down to get in there. What are you expecting uh, when she gets out of prison? Do you think she's going to make the Anna Delvey Foundation happen? You know, I think that she's going to utilize all of her training into doing this and all of her background and learning the ins and outs of how this all works. And I think she's going to apply it to something great. I don't know whether she's going to do that foundation, but I'm sure she's going to connect with some other entrepreneurs and make something happen in a very legitimate way. And then what is your title as a producer going to be on the show? That's what I want to know. <laughs> um, I, they call me the schlamazel. No, I'm only kidding. Um, <laughs> Um, I have no idea, but uh, but I did meet the gentleman who's playing me, and he was great and so gracious. And uh, I went to set, and it was beautiful. I mean, it's they recreated the entire courtroom down to where the pen and paper were on my desk, and and I think people are going to love it. It's going to be great. That's very cool, Todd Spodak. Thank you so much. Just, do you have anything else? Oh, oh yes, I'll, I'll be in touch because uh, there uh, there's a Prince Hakeem of Newark, New Jersey, that's getting ready to start a foundation, <laughs> aka Justin Williams. So I'll, I'm gonna hit you up. I like I like I like your style, man. I got you anytime, <laughs> baby, anytime. <laughs> All right, so that was Todd. Thank you so much, Todd, for your time, and that was a fun interview. He's a charismatic guy. I can see how he would sway a New York jury in that way. 
But, you know, Justin, I want to just take a moment and kind of reflect on what we've done for these last two episodes. And I feel like I've come under the Anna Delvey spell. Like, I've become a fan of her cheering her on in a way because... I don't know. I don't know what happened to me. I hate fraudsters. This isn't what I wanted. And and the victims, I care about the victims. This is the whole point of the show is to not fetishize the fraudsters. And I wanted to know from you, like, what did you feel during this whole thing? Uh, I felt the the certain conflict and hypocrisy as someone who is against fraud, against lying, against scheming. I did uh, notice that I was less mad, but that was particularly because of our f- feelings and our predispositions towards uh, Upper East Side wealthy people. So I think it's a good way to uh, examine that prejudice that we have in ourselves. And I w- will say that from now on, I will fight for the wealthy victims of fraudsters just as much as I will for the not wealthy <laughs> victims of fraudsters. And if you are a wealthy victim of a fraudster and you are looking to support me, <laughs> please go to justinwilliamscomedy.com and send me a donation and I will fight for you. <laughs> and I appreciate that. And I, I think the other thing there too is, and I feel the same way, you know, when we did Jim Baker, we did Miss Cleo, we did Jacob Wool and all of these people, the victims in those cases were people we could relate to people that we may know in our lives and with this it's like well most of the people that she defrauded were wealthy bankers or wealthy people on the upper east side but there were also people at hotels like she made people's lives miserable at restaurants like imagine you're the server at the restaurant she's like uh no no no, someone's gonna come pay for it and then you just have to deal with this like you have to call the cops like maybe you're doing like you're just a server at a restaurant And your day's getting fucked. And so I want to make it clear, right, that, you know, it's hard for us to reconcile uh, not being happy that rich people get there, get get hosed a little bit. But there is like a ripple effect. And whenever we have that ripple effect, I think it's good to call it out. And just be mindful of that. Yeah, I, I would like to see how many people on the low end of the food chain get fired for being the victims of this fraud, right? How many people at the front desk that Anna uses get fired from that position? How, how many of the servers or how many of the uh, door people at the clubs get fired, right? Because uh, they're going to bear the brunt of all of this for, you know, you introduced me to this person, you know what I mean? Exactly. And, you know, again, with Rachel, the the privilege and the wonderful uh, luxury of being able to have the Vanity Fair credit card at your disposal to use. Right. But these folks that were probably the the hotel person working the front desk, they had to just figure it out on their own. They may have risked their jobs. They may have gotten fired if they introduced Anna to somebody. I mean, those are the folks that I think we care about a lot. And again, it's still bad. The fraud is still terrible. I mean, the fact that she was almost able to get $22 million without putting up a single cent is an indictment on both our culture, our society, our financial system, on all of us and how we just don't care. We let these people just kind of walk all over us. Yeah, absolutely. And and for people that bilk the rich, too, you know, it's like uh, – down the chain, you know, for banks that have to close or businesses that have to close, right? It's like someone like Bernie Madoff stole from the rich, but he hurt a lot of working class people that worked for those rich people too. Exactly. And to wrap this up, I think it's fitting that we go to our interview with Emily where she describes interviewing Anna in Rikers prison, which has been her palatial home and the one that she has deserved for these several years that she's been there, although she is getting out in January and will probably have some high-rise apartment that's not hers be her new home. 
So let's go to that interview. So you were able to not just cover the trial uh, and not cover the stuff that happened before she went to Rikers, but you went to Rikers uh, and interviewed her twice. Is that right? That's right. And so what is that experience like going to Rikers? And then, and then what was it like to see her for the first time at Rikers? I've been to Rikers a number of times, visiting people, never, you know, incarcerated myself. And <laughs> this was unlike any other trip to jail I've ever had in my entire career. You know, typically when I, when I go to Rikers, I'm visiting a guy who is, you know, on trial for murder. You know, the first time I went to Rikers, uh, the guy there had uh, been incarcerated for nine years waiting for trial. He had not had a trial in nine years. He was the longest incarcerated. He had the longest incarceration of anyone in all of New York City. And, um, and I, I'm visiting with guys with not with limited means and um, and you know very compelling backstories and not a very good chance of ever getting off. Going to Rikers is this really dehumanizing experience, uh, obviously for the people incarcerated, but also very much for people who visit. And you tend to get a better interview if you go as a visitor as opposed to as a reporter. So I would go as a visitor. So you get a lot of looks and judgmental like stares like, oh, are you like, you know, the girlfriend of this person or dating this person, right? You know, like, why are you here? You would get a lot of comments like he's an animal, you know, lots of like really kind of like kind of gross things that were thrown at you while you wait half a day to get processed in they they all but strip search you you know i mean it it's you keep your clothes on but you feel a little dehumanized after the experience they check behind your throat they they run their hands up you know your entire body they push you against a wall they throw dogs to sniff you around they you walk through multiple um they throw tiny dogs at you they throw the dogs at tiny you. dogs throw them at <laughs> throwing you. dogs unbelievable <laughs> monsters um, <laughs> over i'm glad rikers is gonna close i'm glad oh gosh that's another story but um <laughs> but it, it is a like a very intense you know half a day experience you walk through you know multiple detectors and there's a lot of just like sitting and waiting with basically nothing because you're not allowed to have a pen you're not allowed to, you know, have any paper. You're not allowed to really have, you know, much of anything. And by the time you meet with the person, you have absolutely nothing at all. And then you get exactly one hour. And typically there's, you know, a lot of, you know, comments about what, you know, a dangerous experience this is. And you eventually get there, you get exactly one hour and you've spent about half a day doing it. You know, I mean, people talk about it being a full-time job visiting somebody at jail. And that is a true statement. And so that's sort of the experience that I'm used to. And the first part of that experience is the same with Anna, you know, waiting for several hours, you know, going through the metal detectors, uh, then, you know, running their hands up and down you, peering in the back of your throat, asking, you know, why you're visiting, and then just sitting and waiting. And they always, no matter what jail you're at, they seem to always have that really awful television that's like staticky and you can't like see anything and you can't really hear, but it's playing oftentimes those like courthouse dramas, like just on repeat and like really loudly, even though the audio isn't good, it's really loud. And so you're just like so disoriented and like definitely with a headache by the time you walk in. And then for my interview with Anna, it was, 
after that point, everything was different. Uh, nothing was even remotely similar to how any of the other exchanges has, had been. The first time that I met with her, uh, she did not, actually neither time, she did not know exactly when I'd be coming. And we had, I had not spoken to her about coming before I came. So I had put my name in and I had waited half a day and there was a very good chance she'd say, eh, I don't really feel like talking to her. I don't know her. And then I would have just left and that would have been the end of it. Uh, although it might have taken another hour to get off the island, depending on, you know, additional security measures. So the first time that I get there, I, uh, I walk in and they call their numbers one by one. And I'm like watching for her and I have to like try and make eye contact from across the room and like put my hand up so she'll know who to come to. because She doesn't even know who I am. And she walks in and she sits down. And I introduced myself and she remembered me from the trial, which was helpful. I had like conscientiously always dressed really nicely for the trial in the hopes of like gaining her attention. So with the knowledge that I would be coming and I think that it worked. Well played. I know it was, it was a long run game, right? So um, she sat down and, you know, one of the very first things she said to me in that interview was, I'm not a good person. And I had not mm. asked her, are you a good person? She just voluntarily said, I'm not a good person. And as a reporter, you're really used to getting that mm. like amazing quote that you, you must have misheard. There's no way somebody actually said that. And so, you know, you have to verify. So I said, you mean you are a good person? And she's like, no, I'm not a good person. And this kind of goes back to what we talked about before her like real interest in the human psyche and like who people are uh, and kind of tapping into what would, you know, intrigue them. And for me, when she said that, I had a lot more respect for her than I had prior to that moment because I've spoken to a lot of people who, you know, have killed their children who have married drug lords, none of them said, I'm not a good person. And I think most of them would say, I am a good person. Most people believe themselves to be good people. To have someone who doesn't believe themselves to be a good person showed a, a certain level of insight. But then you get the disconnect. She had no interest in becoming a good person, right? So there was this, that to me was really intriguing. I think she probably also knew that would intrigue me and said it. Um, you know, it was both things. But I found that to be a really intriguing testament to sort of her character. She had no interest in being liked. She had no interest in being good. She had no interest in anyone perceiving her as being good. And she also told me, I'm not sorry. She didn't regret what she had done. And she would probably do it all again. And that was really interesting to me uh, as well, because she said that to me after she'd been sentenced to four to 12 years in, uh, in prison, which was more time served than she would have gotten if she'd taken the plea deal. And she wasn't sorry that she'd gone to trial. She found that to be an interesting experience. There was this very strange element to her that seemed to be like observing her life from afar. And instead of worrying about like, I might lose 12 years in prison, uh, was just more like, this will be time spent, you know, learning about the prison system. You know, I was like, what? You know, like, she's like, well, I'm already working on a book about my time as Anna Delby. 
And I'm also going to write a book about my experiences at Rikers. And I was like, wow. Okay. And she's going to get a huge publishing deal. I'm sure from all of those things. Well, the, you know, the Netflix deal is something that, uh, (laughs) she's not supposed to be able to benefit from monetarily, but she had also told me about, you know, some of the things she wanted to do when she got out of jail. And part of that was she already had an LLC that was operating that she couldn't provide the name to me for, obviously. Ah, I was, I was suspicious that she's, she's making a little money while she's, while she's sitting behind bars as well. Yeah, most, most people go broke when Shonda Rhimes does a television exactly. show about them. I've, I, that's, it's a very <laughs> she's common not had thing. The typical, she's not happens. had the typical jailhouse experience. And she also, I mean, you know, while we were, while we were sitting there, you know, in that, that interview, you know, you've had an hour. That was the same as, you know, with anybody else. And she was throwing out all these names. You know, she was big into name dropping. And there were also a whole slew of, of places she had lived that were not names I trusted that I'd be able to remember. And as a reporter, unless you go in um, having gone through their PR group and are willing to have like six people sitting in on the interview with you, you when you go in as a visitor, there's no notepad, there's no pen. You're just memorizing it all. And I really wanted to get some like some good quotes. I really wanted to like have her voice in there. She has a very distinct voice and just little turns of phrase that she uses that I I found interesting. And I wanted to make sure I captured that. And I said something, I wish I had like a pen and paper. And she goes, oh, let's just ask. And I was thinking, you can't ask for like pen and paper. Like we're like, at writers, right? Like that's like not allowed. Like, first of all, a pen is like a weapon, right? Like they're not going to give me that. And she's like, just, just ask. So I flagged down the guard who hands me a piece of paper and a pencil, which has never happened to me before ever. And I'm thinking, uh, I think he was, uh, I think he might've been the same guy on Epstein's block. I think is that, is that right? <laughs> is he, uh, working? Yes. Right. <laughs> She, she had a lot of, she had a lot of people under her thumb and they gave me a piece of paper and a pencil and I started taking down notes and I thought they're going to take this away at the end, but you know, whatever. And, um, and then she wanted my number. Her lawyer wouldn't give me my number and, uh, we wanted to do another call and, and do some, some other fact checking. And so she said, just write it down and, and, uh, and give it to me. I'm not going to like hand you something while we're here. Right. Like that's like the ultimate like you're not allowed to pass, you're not allowed to have any physical contact with, you know, the incarcerated person that you're sitting across from. You're certainly not allowed to hand them something. So I wrote down the number and like flashed it towards her, like, you know, above the little, the little dividing bar, hoping that she would like see the number and memorize it. She's very smart. She could have totally memorized it. And she looked at it for a while and I could tell she had memorized it. And then she's like, quick, they're not looking. And suddenly the piece of paper was out of my hands. Oh. <laughs> and, and then we were talking and the hour was up. And when the hour is up, you were supposed to like stand up and leave. And she just kept talking and kept answering questions. And the guards are like, Sorokin, Sorokin. And she's like, give me another question. And we like kept going, Sorokin. And it was, it was unreal the, uh, the level to which she just like, pushed that envelope you know of like what they were going to allow and you know a couple hours later i got back from rikers and she she gave me a call so apparently the number was not confiscated (laughs) wow 
Emily is the best. Thank you, Emily Palmer. What an amazing... That was a long interview we did with her. It was so fruitful. We really appreciate all of Emily's help there. She's fantastic. Definitely go and find her bilingual English and Spanish social media accounts to hear more about the fascinating work she's doing. Her handle for both Twitter and Instagram is at Emily E. Palmer. Thanks again to Hazel Bryant, our producer, Marie Anderson, our editor, and to the great folks at Last Podcast Network and Spotify who make this podcast a reality. This has been a production of Last Podcast Network and Zero Cool Media. We'll see you next week. For 25 years, nothing has tasted better after a hard day's work than a Mike's Hard Lemonade. It's because since day one, Mike's has been making lemonade the hard way. We use three kinds of lemons, all handpicked from family farms, then blended to perfection in cold press to create the epic hard lemonade you know and love. Mike's Hard Lemonade. Hard days deserve a hard lemonade. Mike's is hard. So is prison. Don't drive drunk. Premium all beverage with flavors. All registered trademarks used under license by Mike's Hard Lemonade Company, Chicago, Illinois. Emmy Award-winning John Mulaney presents Everybody's in L.A., a special run of six live episodes created by and starring Mulaney that'll stream live on Netflix during the Netflix is a Joke Fest. The comically unconventional show will feature special guests where John Mulaney explores the city of Los Angeles during a week when every funny person is in it. Watch John Mulaney presents Everybody's in L.A., debuting May 3rd live at 7 p.m. Pacific time, only on Netflix.